A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. You know, it was interesting because if we had had the first pick, we would have taken Hakeem Olajuwon just like Houston did. You know, our biggest need was a post player. It would have been a great pick for that franchise. But once you got past that, we felt there was one great player for sure to us. And then there were other good players. I was not a Sam Bowie fan, you know, for us. You know, I thought if he was healthy, he would be a good NBA player. But the medical stuff scared me. We just felt like if we're not getting Hakeem Elijah one, please, Portland, take Sam Bowie. Please. (laughs) Because we were afraid they were going to change their mind. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So we're all getting first bumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, he made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 89. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm happy to welcome head coach and general manager of the Washington Mystics, Mike Tebow, to the show. Our wide-ranging conversation examines a multitude of great topics. Mike's coaching career began in the 1970s. And before the decade ended, he was scouting for the LA Lakers and contributed to the team's 1980 and 1982 NBA championships. We discuss his move to Chicago, where he was named an assistant coach with the Bulls. Alongside then-GM Rod Thorne, Mike scouted the top three picks in the iconic 1984 NBA draft. Mike details Chicago's approach to that draft and the selection of one Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Plus, you'll hear just how close the Bulls came to selecting a future Hall of Famer in the 1985 draft. A what-if for the ages. We also cover Mike's involvement with the WBL, the World Basketball League, and the CBA, Continental Basketball Association. His return to the NBA before embarking on his 15-plus year journey, which continues to this day, in the WNBA. All this and much more in one of my favourite conversations yet. For context, this conversation was recorded just before Christmas 2018. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, will be available at inallairness.com slash 89. Now, onto the show. My guest today has won the most games in WNBA history and has been named the league's Coach of the Year three times. He has an extensive background in basketball, helped assemble NBA championship teams in the 1980s and 90s, more on that later, and he also played a crucial role in the Chicago Bulls drafting of Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Mike Tebow, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. I'm really excited to chat with you today. 
I read an informative article from the Twin Cities Pioneer Press uh, online, which provided a, a good timeline of your early life. Well, we'll see, because there was some misinformation in there, so we'll see how correct they were. Okay, sure. <laughs> well, I've done a fair bit of research here and there, but we'll see how this one goes. Apparently, when you're about five or six years old, your family had moved from Minnesota to California. Yep. Before we actually discuss your coaching history, what sort of sports or, or hobbies were you interested in most when you were a youngster, Mike? My first love actually was baseball. I pretty much love all sports. I mean, I played baseball and basketball, love football, but uh, my my high school football experience lasted about one week when I realized I was going to get killed out there. <laughs> I, uh, I actually have played tennis and golf, and uh, I actually thought uh, as I went off to college that I was done with sports. Um, we can talk more about that, but my other love was music. I thought I was going to be a rock and roll star and be a music major and you know, do all those things. And then I realized that's just as hard uh, a profession as anything there is. It's certainly not a very uh, secure profession. So uh, I had played the drums and trombone and, you know, my love of sports. And I, and I do think music and basketball kind of go together. But um, I feel like, uh, you know, those were my main interests growing up. At some point uh, in my early college years, I had to, some decisions to make. And uh, I got away from music and went to basketball. Sure. Well, that's a great little summation there. Um, I believe it was San Jose that you initially had enrolled to do that music degree at? Yes. Uh, I started out at San Jose State. Great music department, good sports at that time, and not so much now. When I decided to change and I decided I was going to be a high school English teacher and coach basketball, uh, I transferred to the University of Santa Clara. And as you know, by doing the reading, I ended up at St. Martin's to finish my degree. Uh, because of a coaching job. It's a fascinating uh, timeline, actually, and we'll get to that very shortly. With the opportunity to coach the high school basketball, uh, I believe one of the early teams that you looked after were the Santa Cruz High. How did that opportunity actually first present itself? Well, it's funny. My senior year of high school, I got hurt playing and uh, looked like I was going to miss most of the season. I had torn the ligaments in my ankle. I was kind of moping around. I think the uh, varsity coach kind of felt sorry for me. So uh, he asked if I wanted to help coach the freshman team. And we had two freshman teams at our school. We were a pretty big uh, athletic school. So I said, sure, why not? And uh, little did I know that within a month, uh, the coach would quit. And I was coaching the team as a 17-year-old senior in high school. And they brought in some faculty member to kind of be the, the official you know, adult on site. And I coached it, but I went off to college thinking, oh, I'm done. Uh, I thought about walking on in college and realized that wasn't going to work. I don't know if you've heard the term that I was going to be a 20-20-20 player. That means you get to play when you're up 20, down 20, or 20 seconds left. So <laughs> I decided that uh, for then I would uh, do the music route. And a year later, I got talked into coaching the freshman team at a rival high school that uh, from the one I had gone to, Archbishop Mitty High School. And then after... Um, I think two years there, uh, Santa Cruz High was coached by Pete Newell Jr. So I'm sure everybody knows Pete's dad, Pete Newell, uh, great college basketball coach at the University of California, one of the kind of pioneers of, of the modern game. And I, I worked for Pete Jr. as his assistant coach uh, for a couple years. And, you know, that was a big growth period for me, learning more. Um, I started working more basketball camps for Coach Wooden. And being around those older coaches uh, really was good for me. 
Great background there. Um, I hadn't heard of that 202020 actually, surprisingly, but I, I do enjoy <laughs> that. That's great. Um, now, if my uh, research is correct, it was about mid-1978 and you were working as an assistant coach at Cabrillo College in California. You were then offered the position of assistant coach at St. Martin's University in Washington. Correct. Where, as you alluded to earlier, you actually were then, uh, from what I've read, were paid to finish college as you coached. Yep. You graduated from St. Martin's in 1979. Long period of going to college on the 10-year plan. <laughs> it's certainly a unique one that I've never sort of heard of before in terms of how it came to be for yourself. What are your recollections about that move to St. Martin's and how that unique pathway actually came to be for your graduation, Mike? Well, one of the people that I had met uh, in all the summer camp coaching was a guy by the name of Len Stevens, who was a high school coach in California, and he got the head coaching job at St. Martin's. He offered me the opportunity to go up there and be his assistant coach, and I had to take a little bit longer class load because I was close at Santa Clara, but I just wanted to coach so badly at the college level that I accepted the job. I uh, worked multiple jobs, you know, director of intramurals and worked for an ad agency and all these things because the game was important to me. Len was somebody I had met, you know, through the coach wooden camps and he was a very good coach. And I just thought that was an important step. And then coincidentally, you know, in going up there, uh, because of all my camp work in the summer, I had met uh, NBA coaches, particularly the Laker assistant coaches. So things started to develop that I didn't know really what was, you know, in store down the line. This was what I uncovered when I was researching, just a tremendous amount of names and people that you were associated with throughout this period of time. And and when my curiosity really peaked, you were still at St. Martin's, but also were doubling as a part-time uh, Pacific Northwest scout for the LA Lakers. Just briefly returning to that tenure you had at Santa Cruz High School, you mentioned uh, Pete Newell Jr. His father, of course, the Basketball Hall of Famer, Pete Newell, um, was actually the Lakers GM during the mid-1970s. Um, what actually led to your first scouting those games for the Lakers, and uh, what do you sort of recall about the uh, the early games where you were involved helping an NBA franchise? It was interesting how it came about. So a lot of coaches, as you know, in our offseason, we would work, you know, summer camps for young kids. And, you know, in California, if you wanted to, you could probably work one every week of the summer. Hmm. You know, I worked some of Coach Wooden's camps, uh, Rick Berry had camps. Uh, Jerry West at that time had a couple camps in the L.A. area. And in the process of working one of his, I got to know his two assistants, Jack McCloskey and Stan Albeck. Stan, I actually ended up being assistant for in Chicago at one point. You know, the, I don't know, they took a liking to me. Um, we, we talked a lot of basketball in the days they were out at camp, talked about things. And I said, hey, if you ever need anything, uh, I'm going to be coaching up at St. Martin's. If you need somebody to scout for you, just let me know. Well, as it was in those days when East Coast teams came west, you know, there weren't a lot of charters and everything else. So teams basically, when they went on a long West Coast trip, you know, went like Seattle, Portland, uh, Golden State, L.A. And so uh, St. Martin's is partway between Seattle and Portland. And, you know, at a Division II type school at St. Martin's was actually they were NAIA at the time. You don't, you don't have a huge recruiting budget, so you're not like out on the road every night uh, recruiting for your team, and you basically played a lot of weekend games. And so the Lakers asked me if I could on my nights off that I didn't have something, if I wouldn't mind driving to Portland or Seattle to scout games. They paid me by the game. You know, it started to take hold. And then uh, it became uh, more prominent uh, when 
Coach Wested took over the coaching reins a couple of years later. At what point were you actually starting to follow the Lakers and be a part of the team on either road trips or at least for their homestands? I read that it was maybe in late 1980 you were officially announced as a an assistant coach, I believe, and a scout. But prior to that, you're obviously doing work for the team. So how did it come to be where you had a more prominent role with the Lakers squad? Well, in the 1979-80 season when they won the championship, the season had started out with Jack McKinney becoming the head coach uh, when Jerry West retired. And Jack uh, hired Paul Westhead as his assistant. And so Paul, as an assistant coach, was doing some scouting. And I had given him a call and just said, hey, you know, I know you guys have the, the reports and stuff. If you need somebody, you know, here's what I've been doing. Uh, if you get a chance and you want to talk about it, uh, let me know. So probably the preseason of that 79-80 season, Paul took a trip to Seattle to see the Sonics play somebody and asked me if I wanted to meet him, go have dinner, talk about the game. So we did, and we hit it off. Uh, within a couple of weeks, Jack McKinney had his awful bicycle accident, mm. uh, was done coaching, and Paul all of a sudden was the head coach. So now they needed somebody doing more games, but I still had a commitment to St. Martin's at that time. So I tried to do as much scouting for them as I could, given my schedule. And then as the playoffs came around, I did all the scouting for the Western Conference playoffs. Uh, So they had me scout, you know, opponents, Seattle being one of the first or second ones uh, they played. And then, you know, do the preparation. And Jack McKinney, who was getting healthier by that time, but was not coaching, uh, did the Eastern Conference. And so that kind of led to, you know, the, them winning the championship, uh, Paul becoming the full-time head coach. Uh, Pat Riley was his assistant and they needed to hire another assistant coach and they offered me the job that summer. So then I was full-time right after that championship. Uh, so I'd done the scouting up until the championship and then became an assistant coach on the bench uh, following that. Fantastic. How would you sort of scout a game? And a few years hence, there's something I'd love to ask you about the use of videotapes as far as highlights. What did you find most important when you were looking at players? There's two kinds of scouting in the NBA. There's the one that looks at player development, you know, player personnel for the draft, for trades, for those kinds of things. Uh, I wasn't doing that yet. Uh, What I was doing was advanced scouting and preparing uh, scouting reports on a team and how you're going to play them, their plays, how they call them, their strengths, their weaknesses, what they like to do out of a timeout, what they like to do late game situations. I found it was good for me to learn how to scout coaches' tendencies. You know, when you put a gun to this coach's head, what would they do? It prepared me for becoming an assistant coach. I don't know if I would have done as good a job as an assistant coach without having done that scouting first. Um, It allowed me to watch the league, uh, learn the different teams and players. You are scouting players in the sense that you're learning their strengths and weaknesses. You can look at them objectively about potential trades down the road. But that was the start of it. Then when I went to the Lakers, it's not like today's game where every staff in the NBA has seven coaches and a front office staff that's completely separate with, you know, four scouts, you know, for college and two international. I mean, it was Paul Westhead, Pat Riley, me, Jerry West is the GM and one other scout for college stuff. And that was it. So they made me the director of player personnel. Uh, which put me, you know, in charge of the college draft and those kind of things, as well as, you know, all of our advanced scouting and being with the team most of the time. So uh, I think I estimated the first year that I might have, oh, maybe spent only a third of my time actually in my own bed other than hotel rooms. (laughs) 
you know, I, I probably out of the 82 games was with the team somewhere between 65 and 70 of the games. On every other day, I was on a plane going to see a possible opponent or going to see a college game or tournament uh, to prepare us for the draft. And that was just accepted that everybody did it that way. Nobody thought of, you know, large staffs might get it done. You know, sometimes for, for owners in basketball back then, I know Jerry Buss was that way, that assistant coaches were necessary evils, but, you know, we don't want a lot of them around. <laughs> <laughs> so the game has really, really changed in that regard. And it's changed, you know, in the technology, as you alluded to, you know, videotapes and those things. Back at that time, you were on basic, you know, VCR or betas, depending on what, you know, system you own. And you literally were editing tapes by going reel to reel, two machines, you know, fast forwarding until you found the clipper you want, recording it on the other machine and going to the next one. What, what can be done in 30 minutes today took six hours back then. <sighs> I remember in the 81 playoff time, the, the last, I think, week before the playoff started, I spent uh, most of the entire week in a hotel room on the road as we were either going to play Houston or Utah. Uh, maybe there was a third team in there. And I sat there going to games and then going back and preparing videotapes, not knowing which opponent we were going to play. I had to have be prepared for three teams. Every day was spent that way in the hotel room with two video machines. It's hard to imagine these days that uh, someone would have to spend so much time preparing just due to the lack of the advanced technology, I guess, at that stage. So at the time, though, I'm sure... I mean, no cell phones, no cell phones, no computers. <laughs> when we did a scouting report, if the team needed it quickly, I if you saw a game at 7 o'clock on a Tuesday night, you went back to your hotel room, you wrote up a handwritten report because you weren't typing it into a computer and sending it, and you literally made a copy for yourself at the front desk of the hotel. You got in your rental car and you drove to the FedEx place at the airport so that it would go out that night and the team would get it wherever they were the next day. That was how you scouted in those days. That's amazing to hear. I really appreciate you sharing these stories. Uh, just returning briefly to the 1980 NBA Finals for a moment, you said that you were a part of the Lakers team by that stage come playoff time. What memories spring to mind when you think of that incredible series against Philadelphia, particularly Game 6, I suppose, where Magic Johnson, a rookie, had a game for the ages? Well, it was very frustrating for me because as a part-time scout, and I wasn't full-time yet, didn't travel with the team. I was there on some of the West Coast games. But when they went to Philadelphia, you know, they took the team and they didn't take a lot of extra people. And people forget that most of those games weren't on live TV. Mm. So I'm trying to follow the game through bits and pieces because it was tape delayed and didn't come on till a couple hours later. So I knew we had won, but I didn't get to watch it till three hours after it had happened oh. uh, because primetime TV in the United States didn't show games like that live. When you tell young people that today, they look at you like you have two heads. You know, <laughs> what do you mean you didn't get to see it live? And and you didn't. I mean, you did. That's how you know. That's that's how long ago that was. I mean, you know, we're talking about thirty seven, eight years ago now. Yeah, just incredible. Uh, great memories, but yeah, I'm sure at the time must have been very frustrating not knowing exactly how the game played itself out, aside from the fact that you knew that they, they had a win. Now, Paul Westhead's uh, interim title was removed for the 1981 season. However, Pat Riley then replaced Westhead as coach early in the 82 campaign, as you mentioned uh, a moment ago. Uh, we'll talk more about Westhead soon because you have links to him for quite some time. But first, I'd just like to ask you about Bob McAdoo. Uh, he was a great <laughs> addition to, to your 82 Lakers roster. I think that laugh says a lot already. Um, numerous newspaper articles suggested that 
you were pleading with the Lakers to sign uh, the would-be Hall of Famer. Uh, what was involved in scouting McAdoo and, and assessing how he would fit and be a vital piece of that 1982 championship team? Well, I didn't think about it at the time, but probably what we did or what I did was illegal. <laughs> uh, he was still the property of the New Jersey Nets. We had had some discussions with them about various trades and different scenarios, and uh, we knew our bench needed to be better. You know, we made two significant moves that year that helped us uh, with veteran players for our bench, but he was uh, the one that was a key. And so kind of surreptitiously, I got on a plane and flew back to New Jersey. Uh, Bob was not playing for the Nets at that time. They had kind of come to this, you know, agreement that he was in limbo and they would try to do something to help him. But I wanted to know, you know, you know, and I had talked to Jerry West and Paul about it, that he had a bad reputation you know, being selfish and being more about points and not wins and all that. And I wanted to go see for myself. So I went and spent, uh, I think it was three days meeting with him and just kind of getting to know him and going out and having a dinner and, you know, working out and those kinds of things. And I came away totally impressed. Conversations were along the lines of, Hey, coach, you know, I've, I've had all the individual awards. I've won scoring titles. I've done all this. I've had to be the main guy, and that's a lot of pressure. I want to go to a team where I can fit in. I don't have to be, you know, the go-to guy, that there's a good chemistry, and I want to be a part of winning, and that's all I need in the rest of my career right now. And it was sincere. You could tell it was sincere. It was like, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm kind of at wit's end about what to do. You guys are my lifeline. Please throw it out to me. Hmm. The trick was he wasn't in great basketball shape at the time because he hadn't played in a while. I went back and kind of you know stuck my neck out and said, I think we should sign him or do the deal. But I put a little caveat on there is that he's not going to be ready right away. Uh, he's going to have to play his way through it and you're going to have to live with it. And everybody goes, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And they bought it and they said, okay, we'll do it. And of course, he came in and struggled like crazy for the first, I don't know, couple weeks. And everybody's looking at me like, what were you thinking? I said, please, I told you I had to be patient and let's see what happens. You know, give it a few more weeks. And, you know, the rest is history about that. I mean, he, he is exactly what we needed. We did a deal to get Eddie Jordan in that same time frame. And those two guys on our bench, you know, really helped us solidify. I mean, we had five legit, really good bench players to compete with anybody in, in, in the league. And that... That just really helped us. And I, you know, it's, it saved Bob's career. He was exactly what the Lakers needed. Yeah. And come playoff time, he was definitely a, a vital piece on that team as well. Uh, thank you for sharing it. And I believe also that same season, uh, Kurt Rambis joining the LA Lakers is your doing as well. I read in an article, uh, somewhere that you were quoted as saying you'd known him since he was perhaps a teenager. Yes. When I was coaching in high school, actually at uh, the second school I coached at, uh, Archbishop Mitty in San Jose, he played for another high school that we played, and he was a sophomore in high school. His first varsity call-up was against us. You know, he was this kind of, well, people know, gawky, geeky-looking, thin kid, but he could play. Yeah. It's funny how roles change for players, and I think young kids need to learn this. You have to fit into a team for what a team needs. And Kurt understood that better than most. He went to Santa Clara University, was, you know, like the MVP of his college conference and, you know, was all everything. At that time, he wasn't going to come to the Lakers or any other team to be a go-to player. That wasn't what he was going to be. And I think, 
He was drafted by the Knicks, you know, was let go, went overseas and played and came back uh, trying to find a job. And I went to watch him play in the summer uh, Pro-Am League in San Francisco, uh, you know, with a lot of players who probably weren't, you know, NBA type players. In fact, I took my wife with me. She's sitting in the stands saying, which guy are you looking at? <laughs> and I said, you know, the guy with the glasses and the long hair. She said, really? <laughs> um, but he just fit because he understood what was needed by our team. Um, you know, he came in and, you know, Jerry West wasn't sure about him at the time and as were and others. But, you know, Coach West had, I think, trusted my judgment. And Jerry, you know, trusted my judgment enough, even though, you know, he had raised eyebrows because the guy didn't make it with the Knicks. And what we needed was a guy who understood how to play with all our stars and make them better and not need the basketball. He was a guy who could get them the basketball. He could defend. He rebound. He was the best outlet passer on our team. And it's funny with the Laker fast break that we had, you needed somebody to take it out of the net when the other team scored and jump it inbounds quick and not have it be Kareem's job to do that. And Kurt excelled at that, and he was tough. And, you know, he could score around the basket and everything else, but he knew that if I'm going to be an NBA player, this is how I'm going to make it. I can't be what I was in college. And he was terrific at it. Yeah, he fit his required role um, perfectly, no doubt. How did the players actually react to receiving those highlight-based uh, tapes that you put together along with, I think, Bill Burtka? Um I think players uh, were amazed that sometimes that people spent that much time putting something together like that. <laughs> um, you know, Pat Rowdy really believed in motivational uh, videos, much more in vogue. I think today's players are a little bit more jaded. They've seen so many videos every day on everything on social media that doing that is not as effective. But, you know, first of all, you were doing regular videos just to prepare a team. Here's how the other team plays. You know, here's the... Uh, you know, their favorite plays, here's what each player does, five or six clips on each player's favorite moves. But then every once in a while you throw in a motivational thing or something that's funny or you make fun of something and, and it keeps people's attention. Uh, it breaks the tension sometimes when you need it. Uh, it can be inspirational before a game. You tried to figure out, get the pulse of your team as the season went along for what those things needed to be. And as a coaching staff, we talked about, you know, hey, maybe we need to do something with this next video I think we were a little bit ahead of our time in some of the things we did video-wise. Uh, we had a full-time video guy uh, with the team, and um, that was something you know that most teams didn't have, at least that extensively. Do you recall an example at all of any funny sort of clip that you might have inserted into one of those highlight types? Does something spring to mind? Oh, sometimes you could go find, I don't think of specifics, but you could go find a baby picture of one of your players and insert it in right before, you know, somebody whining about a call or. Uh, I like that. I don't think it was with the Lakers, but I think it was later on one of my teams. You're getting ready for a big game. And uh, if you've watched the movie Gladiator, you know, there's a scene in that where you kind of, you talk about the circle and staying in the circle and don't leave, don't break the circle. Those kinds of things. If you break the circle, you're going to perish and you put everybody else at risk. Uh, so you move things through. I mean, sometimes you find just blooper clips to put in about somebody, but it, it varies from, you know, situation to situation. Yeah, I got it. Just before we move on to your time in Chicago, um, what stands out most from the time that you spent with the LA Lakers? Well, obviously being a part of two championships, one as a scout and one as an assistant coach is pretty special. 
you know, it was a really big time in my life. Uh, I got engaged. I got married a couple months after our championship. It was also about six weeks before I moved to Chicago. But I think what impressed me the most that I learned and I could take on from that, we can talk about why I left too, but a lot of people say, you must be crazy to be leaving. But uh, being around the best players, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, Jamal Wilkes, all those guys, and to see how dedicated to their craft they were, how much they were all in, in the effort that it took and what you had to do to be a great player. And yet we're willing. I mean, I can remember sitting down with Kareem on many occasions and he would, you know, ask about who we were going to play and like, tell me about this guy. You know, I don't know him as well. He's a backup player and truly asking so that he could get better or having conversations that were non-basketball conversations, whether it be, you know, about politics or music or whatever. The one thing I learned from the Lakers competitively was that if you lost a game, it was so important that the taste that it left in their mouth that they couldn't wait to play a game. If somebody had told them, especially Magic, if you had told Magic, hey, would you rather go play again three hours from now or would you rather have a couple days off? He'd pick three hours from now, get that taste out of his mouth. He wanted to play again and get the feeling of winning back. And that, that competitiveness was throughout that team. And the organization was that way for a long period of time. Hmm. Uh, thank you for elaborating. Much appreciated. Now, um, you mentioned how you, you left the Lakers not long after, maybe six weeks after the championship in 82. Uh, in June of 82, Paul Westhead was named head coach of the Chicago Bulls. Rod Thorne became GM for that next season. Right. The earliest mention of your name that I could find with the Bulls was in August 82. Uh, the Lakers announced that you had taken a coaching position in Chicago through some paper. I can't remember which one it was. Um, how did that opportunity to work for the Bulls come to be, and what terms did you leave the Lakers on? <laughs> well, I left the Lakers on good terms, other than, you know, I had talked to a lot of friends about, you know, what it takes to advance in the career. And, the, you know, I had said earlier to you that, you know, the assistant coaches, uh, were kind of necessary evils to some of the owners. And I particularly felt that way uh, with Dr. Buss. They just didn't know any differently. Um, it was about the star players and the head coach. And and the other part, if I wanted to make a name for myself, was to, you know, to go help a middle-of-the-road or poor team get better. You know, we were always going to win in L.A., which is a nice thing. But, you know, it became like a comfort zone. You know, I was never probably going to get for lack of a better term, credit for the things you do as an assistant on a team that everybody expects to win. Well, you're going to win anyway. That was kind of the general feeling. Hmm. Obviously, knowing Coach Westhead uh, was the first thing. The second thing was, you know, they offered me a situation where I could be the director of player personnel and assistant and help rebuild the team. I mean, they were a bad team. They were, they were a very bad team. Uh, you don't even know how bad sometimes a team is you know, from the outside until you get there uh, and see the different habits and construction of a team. So I didn't imagine it was going to be as hard as it was, but that was the second thing. And basically they came close to doubling my salary, which was another part of it that made a sense uh, with, you know, a longer term guarantee on my contract. And, you know, I was young enough that, you know, I felt we could do this uh, before we had kids. It was a chance to see how this worked. And, you know, I don't know that I've had any regrets about that. I mean, obviously, the Lakers went on to win more championships, and that would have been fun and everything else. But I don't know if I would have learned as much about myself or about coaching 
uh, had I not taken the the chance I did going to Chicago and what it did for my career, not only there, but what it led to other things. And I just think that, you know, as you go through this profession, there are times you need to learn. And I felt like that was an opportunity to do that. A lot of the older coaches in the NBA, it suggested that, you know, that's how you learn more. And so I took the dive and went. Fascinating to hear. And thank you for elaborating. Now, Paul Westhead led the Bulls to a 28 and 54 record in 1983 and then was replaced by coach Kevin Lockery, who led the team to 27 and 55 the following season. Not really an improvement. <laughs> no, not really. In fact, a step back, one would say. Um, treading water, basically. Now, this leads us to the 1984 NBA draft. And as you alluded to, you weren't just an assistant coach. You had titles that I read in the papers, including Director of Advanced Scouting and Director of Player Personnel. You worked closely alongside GM Rod Thorne in preparation for the 84 draft. Three names were all but cemented as the top three picks. It was going to be some combination of uh, Houston's Akeem Olajuwon, Kentucky's Sam Bowie, and North Carolina's Michael Jordan. Now, of those players, um, did you get to personally scout all of them? All of them. Several more were in that draft. Barkley was in that draft. Mm. I think Sam Perkins might have been in that draft. He was. You know, it was interesting because if we had had the first pick, we would have taken Hakeem Olajuwon just like Houston did. You know, our biggest need was a post player. That would have been a fine pick. It would have been a great pick for that franchise. But once you got past that, we felt there was one great player for sure to us. And then there were other good players. I was not a Sam Bowie fan, you know, for us. You know, I thought he, if he was healthy, he would be a good NBA player. Um, but the medical stuff scared me. But, you know, one of the things I'm really big on, and I learned it early in the NBA, uh, and I did it in L.A., is that I, I like going to watch practices as much as I do games. We spent a lot of time going to college practices, and both Rod and I, uh, new coach Dean Smith in North Carolina, and we were allowed to go and see a lot of practices. I probably went there, I'll say, seven or eight times that year. Wow. And, you know, obviously, you know, we, we saw the tryouts for uh, the Olympic team, and we saw, you know, those kinds of things. But we had a chance to see Michael do some things in practice that, you know, the fans didn't get to see in games. You know, North Carolina played a very balanced offense, and, you know, Michael... Uh, did not score in college like he did in the NBA. He didn't shoot as many jump shots, but you could see him working on it in practice. But watching him practice, if you came one time, you might not know. But if you came enough time, you saw he was the same every time in his competitive nature. I talked about magic earlier. Michael was the same way. Every day was a competition to him. He didn't want to lose at anything. Uh, every drill he played hard in, you saw him do things physically that you didn't see in a game. The dunks that, you know, became uh, his trademark as a rookie, you know, you saw some of that in college, but you didn't see how we got to it. And we just felt like if we're not getting Hakeem Elijah one, please, Portland, take Sam Bowie, please. Because <laughs> we were afraid they were going to change their mind. Interesting part that most people don't know, and I'll leave some of the names out, but there were owners in the organization, particularly one of the owners, saying, we don't need another guard. We need to take a center. Why don't we trade down and take like Mel Turpin? Ooh. People don't know who Mel Turpin is. There's a good reason. He lasted about three years in the, in the NBA, ate himself out of the league. They wanted a center so badly. Rod and I basically said, we're locking everybody else out of the room 
so they can't come in and change our pick on us. <laughs> and unless Portland changes up on us, we're taking Michael. It's funny, even after the draft, I remember getting a call from somebody in the front office of the Bulls when I was out at the Olympics and saying, are you sure this is going to work? Why do, you know, we, just another guard? I mean, is he good? How good is he going to be? I said, well, I, nobody, nobody could have told you he was going to be the best player ever. My comment was, well, he'll be an all-star for a whole bunch of years, and you know that should be enough to justify where we took him. But he, I said he has a chance to be one of the best, and they they thought I was crazy. <laughs> so you know you wait and wait it out, and sure enough, it worked out okay for him. Yeah, it worked out all right, didn't it? <laughs> um, the Chicago Tribune printed that Bulls management were at the Conrad Hilton, uh, two floors above a ballroom that was filled with fans who watched the draft on TV. Um, prevailing wisdom suggested the Bulls needed a centre, as uh, as you alluded to earlier. Yep. What sort of springs to mind in terms of the moments after making the pick and then the reaction from Chicagoans in general? You know, it's funny. I don't remember much about the fans as far as that goes. Uh, I think it was mixed. There were fans who were excited about the guy they saw on TV dunking and everything else. But I think everybody felt that, you know, if we had been able to make a trade and get a center, that was best for the team. And I felt like we got the best player at, at the third pick. I mean, there was no hesitation on Rod's part or my part. Uh, there were other people in the room who, you know, probably weren't all in on it. But you know, that was our job. We had seen him the most. Uh, you know, that's that's what we were paid to do. I walked out of there feeling great about it. As young as I was, I might have just been oblivious to other people who didn't like it that much other than what I heard on our own building. I found some quotes of yours, actually, around this time from various papers, and a few of them are as follows. Jordan was too good to pass up. He's one of those players who comes along once in a decade. Michael has that intense desire to compete and win. Clearly, you were uh, all on board the the Jordan train as he entered Chicago. You mentioned there about you were at the Olympics as well in 1984 that were in uh, Los Angeles. Um, What do you remember about the games that you were watching as Team USA basically obliterated everybody en route to the gold medal, uh, knowing that Jordan was in the back pocket for the Bulls? I mean, it was fun to watch. You know, every time he did something great, we go, hey, he's going to be with us in a couple months. (laughs) You know, that's fun as a a coach or a scout. you know, the, I mean, the games were so one-sided, it, it really wasn't uh, a great basketball tournament from that standpoint. I think probably reconfirmed for me that, you know, we had done the right thing, how competitive he was, how he could, you know, adjust to different situations. I mean, playing for Coach Knight in that was going to be, you know, different from playing for Coach Smith in college, and it was going to be different from playing for Kevin Lockery in, in Chicago, and he could handle all the different things. You know, I know Coach Knight has talked about purposely getting on Michael some days to make him example in front of other players, knowing that Michael could take it. That's exactly what happened. He was a special, special player in that regard. Uh, now, the Bulls went 38-44 and 44 in Jordan's rookie season and made the playoffs for the first time since 1981 before uh, losing in four games to the Milwaukee Bucks in round one of the playoffs. Jordan basically led the team in almost all statistical categories. He averaged over 28 points, six and a half boards, almost six assists and two and a half steals a game. How was it for you to see him perform at such a high level as a rookie? I mean, obviously it, it justified the pick. Um, you saw the good and the frustrating in the sense that 
you know, Michael was going to be what we thought he could be, and he was willing to work at the things he wasn't good at. I mean, he wasn't a great outside shooter, but he would spend time on things. He could play through injuries. He played hurt. You know, obviously, we didn't have enough help for him, or we would have gone farther. We had a lot of building to do, but that's a great way. You know, when, when teams are building uh, from the bottom, uh, you need a great player like that to be the catalyst. He was able to adjust to the physical pounding that he took. You know, the, the NBA season is such a marathon uh, that an 82-game season for a person coming out of college is a, is a real grind. And I don't remember when it was. He hit the wall briefly uh, at some point in the season, but, you know, he could sustain it. He learned how to sustain his energy. What I also think he, he had to learn quickly as his fame kind of grew is how to deal with all the outside influences. And in that first two years, all of a sudden, you know, the demands on him were more than he had ever had. I remember going to lunch with him after practice one day uh, in a restaurant in downtown Chicago when we waited purposely till after the, the main lunch hour was over. So at about 2 p.m., we walked in and asked for a back table with kind of our back to the restaurant so that people wouldn't easily see us. And yet, Within 30 minutes, there was a line of people coming over doing the usual thing of saying, hey, I hate to bother you, but, and then ask for an autograph or a picture. He learned early on that that was going to be an issue for him. I feel sorry for players like that because they almost become prisoners of their fame. Uh, You can't go out and do the normal things you like to do. Uh, We had to hire security on the road. I remember being in New York that year. And Michael patiently signing autographs outside the garden as we're getting ready to go. And it's about 34 degrees and it's got snow flurries and, you know, everybody else is waiting on the bus. And finally, after about 30 minutes, our security people said, hey, he's got to get on the bus. The team is waiting. You know, he had probably patiently signed autographs for over 100 fans during that time. Mm -hmm. And people were mad, you know, that he got up and had to get on the bus. And literally people were banging on the bus and shaking the bus and i'm thinking oh my this is this is going to get interesting and it got to a point that we had to get a special car and security to take michael from the arena a lot of times because a the the rest of the team couldn't sit there and wait every single night for different things and the media stuff and b it was probably safer for him and then he ended up having to have security on hotel floors people were knocking on doors trying to find you know players for autographs and it just that was the start for me of all the craziness that, you know, all these players now have to endure. And it's why they have their own security people and those kinds of things. Yeah, it sounds like an absolute circus, uh, unfortunately, um, just dealing with his own fame. Um, now, you talked about continuing to work on building a team uh, around Jordan primarily. So enter the 1985 NBA draft. There was a new GM in town. You were working uh, with Jerry Krause and a draft day deal had Cleveland pick Charles Oakley at number nine, <laughs> and Chicago picked Keith Lee at number 11. Then the Bulls sent Lee and I think uh, Enos Watley to the Cavaliers in return for Charles Oakley, and there was a second-round pick. But researching for our chat today, I was most fascinated by what could have been in relation to the 85 draft. Mm-hmm. As much as I love the heart and hustle of Charles Oakley and what he <laughs> provided in Chicago, you actually had your eyes on another power forward. Yeah. So that was, I don't know if that's the beginning of the end with my relationship with Jerry Krause. Uh, He had just come on board about two months before the end of the season. They fired Rod Thorne. 
late in the season uh, when Reinsdorf bought the team. And Reinsdorf knew Krause from baseball with the White Sox, and he had been a scout. I'll leave other comments out of it. But my job at that time was to kind of reacclimate Jerry Krause to the league. I love Charles Oakley, and I would have been fine with the trade had not the other scenario presented itself. But Jerry had a rule that every possible draft pick had to interview with us or we wouldn't take him. Well, the person we're going to talk about uh, was expected to go somewhere between five and seven in the draft and decided not to come in for the interview. Um, So, you know, that's where he assumed that he was going to be drafted. But as the draft started and things started sliding, I realized that Carl Malone was going to be possibly available for us at our pick. I got overruled. Jerry said to me, we cannot take him. He didn't come in for his interview. And I said, Jerry, Carl Malone never thought he was going to get to our pick. We need to take him. He's the best player out there. You've seen him plenty of times. You went and watched him with me. You loved him as a player. He said, but yeah, but he didn't come in as, as an interview. Well, I think that was one of the times we should have broken our rules about whether you interview because we passed on Carl Malone. Now, so did a bunch of other teams, but I just always think about what would have been if Carl Malone and Michael Jordan had played together. It's just such a fascinating what if, and I'm not not a massive fan of what ifs, but this one was incredibly intriguing. And when I read about it, absolutely flummoxed by it. So uh, <laughs> fascinating of what may have been. So do you think that that maybe fractured somewhat your relationship with Jerry going forward as the 85-86 season came to be? I think it didn't help, but I don't know if that was the biggest thing. You know, it was an interesting scenario. So after that draft, they fired Kevin Lockery and they hired Stan Albeck to be the coach in 85 and 86. Gave him a longer contract, I think a three-year deal. And Stan and I, this now goes full circle back to what I said at the start about him being with the Lakers and hiring me to scout. And so Stan and I and our wives hit it off great. It seemed like the perfect thing. And our and our players in Chicago loved Stan. They liked playing for him. You know, obviously he had coached the great teams in San Antonio, coached in uh, New Jersey when they had the good teams. And I thought it was the perfect hire for our team. But I think the start of the downhill for everybody was that uh, Jerry Krause believed in doing certain things a certain way, and he thought that practices and the team should be run a little bit more like a college team. You have long practices, just did it more that way, and I don't think he understood what it was like to be a player and play four games in five nights in you know four cities and come home. And so we would come home from a road trip. We would just played, and Stan would give the players a day off. Jerry would be calling saying, why aren't you practicing? And they would kind of get into it about that. I just feel like Jerry went back to ownership and said, hey, I made a mistake. I hired the wrong guy. Uh, Somewhere in that time period, he had met Doug Collins and they had had some conversations. Doug was out of work. Mm. He had Doug kind of evaluate our team and they struck up a friendship. And at the end of the year, I knew I was done and and Stan was done uh, about a week after we had lost to Boston in the playoffs which it was a great, great series. I went in and said to Jerry, hey, what tapes do you want me to take home on which college players are we going to focus in on? We also probably were on different wavelengths there. I wanted to take Johnny Dawkins, and we ended up taking, uh, trying to think of the guy from Ohio State. Brad Sellers? Brad Sellers. But oh, I went in and said, what tapes do you want me to take home? He said, nah, you don't need to bother. I'm good. I got this covered. That's ominous. 
I went home and called Stan. I said, I think we're getting fired. He said, no way. He said, they got to pay me for a couple more years. I said, Stan, I think we're getting fired. 48 hours later, Stan got a call to come back up from San Antonio to Chicago. The Jerry wanted to meet with him. And we were done. Wow. That quickly. Those things happen. I mean, you know, that was probably the best season the Bulls had had in a while. Michael missed 68 games uh, with the injuries. But we gave Boston, who won the championship, a great run. Uh, the famous 63-point playoff game, it was, you know, you could see everything coming together, but uh, Jerry wanted to do it his way, and that's, you know, the owner signed off on it. It's their team. It's their money. That's what you live by. Thank you for elaborating. It's just fascinating to hear this. Um, now, you mentioned Jordan's injury there. That was October 29 of 1985. The Bulls were 3-0 and at the time uh, of the injury. Um were you actually in Golden State when the injury happened and he broke his foot, or were you back home in Chicago? Do you remember? Uh, I don't. I think I was out scouting another game that day. It was devastating. The reason I ask that is because also on that same date, as fate would perhaps have it, uh, you helped sign free agent John Paxson. Paxson would have uh, a massive impact on the Bulls franchise. Well, still does to this day, actually for different reasons. Uh, he'd be a fixture on those Bulls teams for the next eight seasons or, or so, and three of which became NBA titles. Yep. What can you sort of tell us perhaps about um, the signing of Paxson and uh, his importance to the team going forwards as well? Was he a free? I, I keep thinking we've traded a second-round pick for him, but you may be right. But regardless, uh, what we needed was uh, perimeter shooters to take the pressure off of Michael. And bringing in Paxson and Kyle Macy were two long-distance shooters who could knock down threes, you know, good teammates, uh, competitive, and understood how to, you know, make Michael's life a little bit easier by how they move without the ball, uh, space the floor. And John just seemed to fit the bill for us. The year became quite a kind of a turmoil year in the sense of all the stuff we had to go through. We had so many injuries that year that I actually practiced with the team for three or four weeks, I think. <laughs> Guys were fighting over who got to guard me because they wanted an easy day in practice. <laughs> so, But, you know, that was one of those situations where, you know, it turned out to be probably far better than we even imagined at the time. It worked out perfectly. That's uh, fantastic to hear that you're involved in some of those practices. Now, you alluded to Jordan's record-setting game at Boston. Yep. Double overtime loss, but he had 63 points, set a new uh, NBA record, still stands to this day. Um, what are your recollections of that particular game? And I have read in numerous uh, articles whilst researching about your career that you said it was one of the most uh, special games that you've ever been uh, a part of or have witnessed. Well, the Celtics were special. I mean, that was a great, great team that they had. I think that's one of the better teams in NBA history, the 86 Celtics. Absolutely. You know, a couple Lakers teams, I would say, you know, obviously Bulls and Warriors and some Piston teams, the Philadelphia team in 83. But the 86 Celtics were deep. Uh, Larry Bird was at his best. And I remember Michael just kind of matching play after play against all the great plays that Boston made. You know, McHale made great plays. Bird made great plays. And every time it looked like the game would might get away from us, Michael made another big play or shot. I remember Bird talking about him after the game like you know it was like we were trying to defend god and, and you know it was you know it was it was just back and forth the atmosphere in the building was electric you know celtic fans were wild about it and springtime and it's hot in the building his will was we weren't going to lose now clearly we lost the series and everything else but he he himself 
was taking on the best team of its time. We were nowhere near their talent level, um, but I felt like the Celtics were tested as well as they were ever going to be tested in that game. Incredible game, one for the ages, no doubt. Now, it was reported in late May of 86, and you were talking about it, the fact that the Bulls no longer required your services, and Doug Collins was uh, Chicago's recently uh, instilled coach. Just reflecting on that four years with the Bulls, um, you know, 30-plus years later, what's your sort of overall feeling about that, Mike? I was proud and glad to be a part of, you know, changing the culture there and getting it started for what became their championship teams, but very disappointed that, you know, kind of the people that got it all started didn't get to see it through. But the other lesson I learned is when you own the team and you write the paychecks, you can do whatever you want. And as coaches and players, you kind of need to remember that, particularly as coaches. You know, players nowadays have a little bit more autonomy with free agency and things, but I've been through it where you can get fired in any sport uh, and it has nothing to do with you particularly. I can look back and say I did my job. Uh, we didn't lose because of me. We, you know, you got to remember you didn't win because of you either. Everybody has a role to play. I think I accepted the role that I had, but I, I learned to understand that, you know, it's their money. It's their team. They can do what they want. You don't have to like it. It may not be right, but that comes with the territory. I think most everybody that's been in the business long enough goes through that where you get fired or your your head coach gets fired and, you know, you're part of that. That's the way it is. I survived, you know, the two previous coaches getting fired. Hmm. When Westhead and Lockery got fired, the organization kept me and had, you know, good reason to keep me. But this time, you know, a new ownership group, a uh, new GM, they, they wanted to do things their way. As, as history shows, uh, they had problems with everybody going forward, too. I mean, Doug Collins and Jerry eventually had a falling out. Phil Jackson, and for winning six championships there, still had a falling out at some point. That's just part of what goes on in the, in the, in the world of pro sports. It is, unfortunately. Um, now, this morning, just before we started chatting, I did a bit of a deep dive into the World Basketball League, which I knew nothing, <laughs> <laughs> I knew nothing about prior to today, basically. Um, basically, I didn't know anything about it before I did it either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Just in a, in a nutshell, for a little bit of context for our listener, you were part of Canada's World Basketball League. Uh, you were the GM and head coach of the Calgary 88s. And I think you're the first coach that I've spoken with that has WBL experience. Um, it was a league where the players had a height limit of six foot five and six four, yeah. Six four. And the league tipped off with, I think, six teams in May of 1988. Now, on opening day, you were quoted in the Calgary Herald We've got contests, we've got charity groups, we've got spotlights, we've got music. It's like Hollywood and the NBA and everything put together. Your 88s went 32 and 22 in the regular season and would meet the Chicago Express in a four-on-the-floor tournament <laughs> where a young guy named Kevin Gamble uh, upset the apple cart and dropped 33 points on your team, which ended the season. You were also named the inaugural coach of the year. All of that said, how would you describe the WBL experience? I had fun. You know, there was two Canadian teams and four U.S. teams, and it was the first time that I uh, had the experience of kind of running my own show from top to bottom. And it was interesting, you know, we had just had our first child, and here we are moving to a foreign country, and 
you know, putting a new team together. Um, I'm watching the people on the business end trying to figure out about ordering uniforms. And here I am, you know, hiring assistant coach and trainers and video people and putting together a roster and a draft and, you know, doing the things I had learned, but having to do all of the different jobs at one time Mm. and then becoming the head coach. And I think it was a great learning experience. It was a great time to live in Calgary that year because it was the Winter Olympics in 88. Um, The Calgary Flames uh, NHL team won the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs that year. So it was an exciting time to be there. And I loved it. I mean, I loved doing it. The the game was fast. The majority of the players, if they were going to be NBA guys, they were going to be guards. But you had the undersized 6'4 college post player who that was a place for him to play. Hmm. Um, we had a fun team. Uh, the playoffs weren't necessarily fair because they were uh, one and done, you know, no home court advantage. Uh, we lost on a tip in at the buzzer. But I think that was my first step in what I would say is learning to be me. We hosted the All-Star Game. My wife put it on, actually. You know, there was a lot of things to be done, but we really enjoyed it. You know, we would have stayed uh, beyond that, uh, but it was an interesting uh, situation. The new ownership group that came in and took over for the second year bought out the guy that owned it when I took over, and I had a small ownership part of it, but in buying the team, uh, I had to give up my ownership uh, when they bought it, which means they could go get their own coach. And they thought I was paid too much, so (laughs) they went the cheaper way and got another coach. I got out of the deal, and I got you know whatever little bit of ownership money that was involved in that, and moved on, not knowing at all what I was going to do next. (laughs) Right. Well, it sounds like it was a very valuable experience at learning so many things and putting them into practice at the one time in a brand new league as well. Yep. So moving forward, um, in October of 1989. You were named the head coach of first-year CBA franchise, the Omaha Racers. Are we getting a pattern here of first year? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll ask you about that in just a moment, actually. You coached the Racers for eight seasons and guided the team to eight consecutive playoff appearances, which is absolutely fantastic. And as a CBA coach, you ranked sixth all-time in total wins with 236, and you won the 1993 CBA championship. So lots of things happened. Um that same year as well, you were also named Sportsman of the Year by the Omaha Broadcasters, for what it's worth, too, I've learned. Can you describe taking over another first-year team in the CBA this time and that build towards the 1993 CBA title and any particular memories that might just spring to mind from that time there, Mike? Well, the first thing I would say is that you know it was a continuation of my experience in Calgary in the sense that I was going to be a coach and a general manager and team president and kind of get to shape things the way I thought they were supposed to be done and put into use what I had learned. They had bought a team that had been in Rochester, Minnesota, and I don't know when the last time they had made the playoffs was, but it had been a while. And it wasn't a very good team. And and it's very transitory. I mean, the CBA in those days is what the G League is now. That's, you know, we, we became the D League and then the G League and it's the same minor league basketball, but you didn't have the same affiliations with the NBA. You were able to get a couple players from an NBA team, uh, but you didn't have a direct minor league relationship where guys could be called up and down like they are now with the same team. So any one of my players could be called up at any time. In fact, the year that we won the championship at one time, I had three players called up to the NBA in a 10-day period. And so you're learning to scramble and find somebody new and have a list of players you could sign. You learned how to have practices with not 10 players. 
So I learned a lot of three-on-three and four-on-four drills. From a business end, you know, you're going into a city that, A, I never thought I'd live in, in Omaha, Nebraska, in the middle of the country, which turned out to be a great experience raising a family. But it was, you know, another learning thing. And the, and the good part from an actually basketball standpoint is I could try things and experiment with things without it being in the national spotlight. If I made a mistake, I could learn from it and it wasn't, you know, life and death. Um, I could, you know, experiment with a certain way to play or try certain different defenses and, and try these things I had watched other people do or learn or things I just thought would work. I had a supportive ownership group. Uh, with Steve and Sherry Eidelman, who allow me to be me. And, you know, they trusted me to run their organization. And I've always been a person that, you know, felt like everything we did had to be first class. And so in the context of a minor league, other than, you know, the, the, the actual salaries, our ownership treated us as, as if we were, you know, an NBA team in, in trying to make the situation uh, as good as possible. And, you know, gave me the resources to do it. And I learned so much during that time. And my kids, uh, I have a son and a daughter, both grew up in an Omaha system where there was good schools and uh, good recreation and sports and music for the kids. And it was just a great experience for us. And I think it prepared me as much as anything for what I've done once I came to the WNBA. You know, when I went back to the NBA, uh, I think I was a better person for it. Uh, for learning all those things and appreciating, you know, sometimes as an assistant coach, you don't appreciate what a head coach goes through until you have to experience it. Well, having to do all of that as a, as a CBA coach and GM, um, I could understand when I went back to the NBA what that head coach was having to deal with when practice was over, whether it was reporters or, you know, individual meetings with players or dealing with the GM, all those things that I really, you know, had to experience to understand. Great answer. Good to hear you talk about the, the fact that the ownership were behind you in trying to make the team as best possible because that's not always the case, uh, unfortunately, as you well know. Um, just returning briefly to September of 1990, I just learned that you were approached by uh, old friend Paul Westhead, <laughs> who was then coaching the, the Denver Nuggets in the NBA. Um, I've read that you were offered the top assistant position in Denver. How close were you to accepting the job? And in hindsight, um, given that successful run in the CBA did you ever look back and sort of wonder uh, what if to, to that opportunity or any other NBA opportunities that you received since um, I mean my wife and I talked about it at length you know Paul and Cassie were really good friends but I felt like I needed to kind of see it out for a little bit to see who I was as a coach I don't know that I had necessarily a good or bad opinion about what would happen with the Denver franchise, but they had been through some tough times and I didn't know if Paul could survive it. And I really didn't want to go through that situation again of being an assistant in the NBA for two years or three years and then having to look for something else. I wanted to do something that I could say was my own a little bit. Uh, we decided, you know, uh, we had made enough moves at that time that we wanted to see it through at least for a while longer in Omaha. Mm. that, you know, if we did the right thing, other opportunities would come at some point, but that wasn't the time for us to move and pick up and do something different. We both felt good about it. Yeah, well, you're there for the best part of a decade and had some tremendous success there. The CBA has always been a league that I've sort of been fascinated with over the years. Um, perhaps at another time, we can maybe do a bit more of a deeper dive into some of those 
teams and uh, experiences that you uh, had. It was quite an experience. <laughs> uh, but moving forward, though, um, your CBA tenure uh, came to an end when Omaha uh, ceased operation in the CBA, if my facts are correct, uh, in mid-97. It just became very expensive. Uh, we were losing money. I mean, everybody in the league was basically losing money because you didn't get enough money from the NBA and the salaries were too high for most of the owners to pay without some subsidy. Okay, makes sense. Now that opened the door then to an NBA return and you were working as a scout for George Carl, who's a former CBA himself yep. uh, in terms of coaching, uh, and the Seattle Supersonics in the 98 season. And then Carl left the Sonics for the Milwaukee Bucks in the lockout shortened season and you joined him in Milwaukee as well as one of his assistants. So you spent four seasons with the Bucks. Um, in 2001, you made it to the Eastern Conference Finals and took on um, Allen Iverson and the Philadelphia 76ers, went to seven games. Uh, how was that time working alongside George, uh, given your respective histories in the CBA and, and what was it like to be back in the NBA at the highest level again? Um, it was a really good experience uh, for the most part until the very end. Again, you know, going to a team in Milwaukee that had not had a lot of success, George was a high-energy guy. He hired a really good staff, uh, Terry Stotts and Ron Adams. Uh, we had Mike Woodson on that staff. The late Donnie Newman was on that staff uh, when Mike Woodson left. I thought we had a very good staff. Uh, we had a lot of things. Uh, Tim Gergerich came in as part of that staff. For people who know Tim, he was kind of the guru of player development in the NBA at that time. And it was good to see a team turn around um, and the young players. I mean, you know, with Ray Allen and Glenn Robinson and Sam Cassell and that group that we had, uh, it was a very positive experience. The only negative part of it was how it ended because there was some discord. George felt like he needed to shake things up. Terry Stotts, who had been his closest friend, had played for him and coached with him for years. It's a whole other chat in and of itself. Mm. And needless to say, Terry and I kind of ended up on the wrong side of a discussion. So we all parted ways, uh, not necessarily of our own doing. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was interesting because after we went to the Eastern Conference Finals uh, that you alluded to, uh, it was a great series. Uh, I still think the officials took it from us, but that's all right. Um, there was quite a bit of discord that summer on what we should do with our roster. and. We had a guy on our team, Scotty Williams from North Carolina, who was a terrific role player. Uh, but there were people in the organization that felt uh, that we needed something different. And that started kind of the divide. George wanted to bring in Anthony Mason from New York, felt we needed a tough guy who would do things better defender. And uh, we kind of went around the table and talked about it. And both Terry and I were against it. We wanted to keep Scotty Williams and keep it as it was. And. It ended up being that they traded Scotty Williams and brought in Anthony Mason, and it didn't work. We uh, The chemistry on our team was terrible the next year. We missed the playoffs by, I think, one or two games, one game last weekend of the season, and things started to go downhill in, in Milwaukee from there. Terry and I left within a couple years. George was out, but I just felt we, we had something good that we could have enhanced, but we didn't need to make a radical change to, and that's what happened. Um, and it was a mistake that was made. Thank you for uh, being open and honest here. It's much appreciated. Um, Scott Williams, for what it's worth, his first three seasons in the NBA out of North Carolina were three titles with the Bulls. Exactly. <laughs> Always got a fond spot for um, Scott Williams when we talk about uh, anything NBA history. Now, um, 
In 2003, uh, you became head coach of the WNBA's Connecticut Sun, and you coached the team for, I think, 10 seasons. You won Coach of the Year twice uh, in 2006-2008. You made the playoffs eight times and had two trips to the WNBA Finals in 2004 and 2005. How did the opportunity to coach in the WNBA actually come to be in, in the first place? Well, after the Milwaukee situation, um, I was kind of trying to decide what to do. I was uh, working uh, for a couple of NBA teams as a consultant uh, with the Knicks and with the Hawks. And my friend Terry Stotts was uh, in Atlanta, had become the head coach or the interim head coach, and debating whether I wanted you know, to go that path again. And I had a lot of friends in the WNBA who said, hey, you'd really like this situation if you came into the WNBA. I thought about it. My daughter was a young, you know, fifth or sixth grade, I forget, player at the time and trying to help coach her AAU team. And she was saying, dad, we need more good coaches in the women's game. So the irony is I I originally wasn't going to take the Connecticut job. I had been offered uh, the job in Portland. Uh, They had a WNBA team and was working on a contract and online looking at houses with my wife. And I got a call back from the person who's the GM, and she said, I have bad news. Paul Allen is going to fold the team. Wow. And I was like in shock. I mean, this is, you know, we had kind of made the decision to do it, and we were looking forward to getting back to the West Coast. My family's from California. My wife's family's from uh, the state of Washington. So, you know, we were going to be close to home with everybody, and that was, you know, like a shock that, you know, all of a sudden this team wasn't going to be in business. But she said, uh, but the good part is uh, there's a team that's being bought. The Orlando team is being bought and and sold to a group in Connecticut, and they would have some interest in talking to you about the coaching job. And so there we went. Went and met with uh, the ownership group in Connecticut, uh, the people in charge, and we hit it off. Shortly thereafter, there I was. You know, at the time, I'm thinking, well, we'll try this for a few years and see if we like it. (laughs) If we don't, we'll go back to the NBA or, you know, whatever. We fell in love with it. There became a side benefit to coaching in the WNBA that I didn't even think about at the time. You know, when you're in the NBA and you're in the middle of winter, you're, you're, you're coaching during the school year. And, you know, you don't get to see your kids grow up normally. I mean, you, you see bits and pieces, but coaching in the summer in the WNBA, allowed me to watch my kids grow up and see them play their sports and do music and all of those things. So our family life changed. It was it was different. I mean, you don't have the normal summer vacations, but you got a chance to still do what you love, be a head coach. And I fell in love with uh, watching the WNBA's women's game improve. I uh, was part of a committee that you know, helped change some of the rules in the league and made it more like the NBA rules. It was more like a college game when I first went in uh, with, you know, zone defenses allowed and a 30-second clock and, you know, different things. And we wanted to speed the game up. And, you know, I think the NBA influence came into the WNBA uh, with some of the coaches that were in the league when I came in and we got some things changed. And I've, I've loved it ever since. And to this very day, you're still with the WNBA, and we'll talk about the next uh, tenure uh, as coach, and you went to the uh, Washington Mystics uh, in December, I think, of 2012. You took over as head coach. The two seasons prior, the team had gone 11-57. and 57. <laughs> 
So here we are on the reclamation project again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, definitely a theme, but certainly a challenge that you uh, undertook and uh, have excelled at. Um, you led the franchise to postseason play in each of the first three seasons when you were in Washington. Just this year, 2018, you made it to the WNBA finals. And I think that's the first time in the team's history um, before eventually falling to the Seattle Storm. As we record this, if my numbers are correct, you're sitting on 310 WNBA victories as coach. Can you reflect on your time with the Mystics, which also includes 2013 Coach of the Year Award too, and just the recent WNBA finals, uh, Mike? Well, once again, I mean, I took over a team that, you know, you think from the outside, well, they can't be that bad. <laughs> <laughs> and and I should have known when a team is 5-29 and 29 and you're playing against them, I think I had more wins against Washington for a while than any other team in the league when I was coaching in Connecticut. So that should have been my first clue. <laughs> um, but I liked the ownership group when I came and met with them. Ted Leonsis and Sheila Johnson uh, basically turned it over to me and said, you know, we trust you to right the ship and do what you want. The funny story in all of this is about a month and a half before that, I had been sitting watching the WNBA lottery for the draft. And Washington, coming off that 5-29 and 29 record, had the most chances to get the top pick in the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who follow the WNBA, the top picks were going to be either Brittany Griner or Elena Deladon or Skylar Diggins. Well, about everything of bad luck you could have, they got the fourth pick. <laughs> so there was this big promo of the three to see, and we had four. Uh, <laughs> But I'm thinking at the time, geez, those poor people in Washington, that's really too bad for them. I can't <laughs> believe that they had such bad luck in this. And then six weeks or eight weeks later, I'm the coach and I'm going, oh, that's really too bad for this guy that just took this job. <laughs> you went from observer to, oh, hang on, now I'm in charge of this. Active participant. So, I, In fact, I used to kid Taylor Hill, who was our pick in that draft. I said, yeah, you were the first pick of the other draft. So... <laughs> <laughs> it was an interesting start, and, and, and I give the players that were there credit. They weren't good enough uh, to be a great team. They had a lot of what I would call good complementary players, but to be great in any pro league in, in basketball, you have to have two or three star players. You have to be that good. The talk that teams have this big three or big four throughout the NBA, and it goes back to you know the old Celtics and Lakers and to Jordan's teams with Pippen and Rodman or Pippen and who, you know, uh, you need that kind of player. You need two stars for sure and a third that can be close to that when you needed that person to be. Washington team wasn't anywhere close to that. They had nobody that fit that bill. So basically we started, you know, rebooting the team, uh, changing the culture, how we went about things, the attitudes. uh, And we made the playoffs the first year. I'm not sure how we did it, but we played really hard. And we defended and we got better and we brought in a couple players as free agents who weren't stars, but they were great energy players and they bought into how you had to do things. Um, And it changed the perception uh, of people in our own organization uh, because a lot of our people worked for both the Wizards and the Capitals as well as us. And we had to change the fans' perception and we had to change the people around the league's perception. Referees didn't respect uh, the players in Washington until we started playing the right way. It's been a constant process. Uh, we only have one player on our roster this past year that had ever been part of those. And actually she left for a couple of years and came back. Um, but 
you know, it, it was a process of educating the fans that, yeah, you can love these players as people, but my, my job is to, is to win a championship. I can like them, but I got to go and do what's right to win a game and win a championship. So that was a, an education process, I think, for our fans too. Great background there. Now, you mentioned Elena Deladon. I think she joined your team in 2017. Yes. How has her um, arrival impacted the team the last season or two? Obviously, she's put up some fantastic numbers. You're in the WNBA finals this year. How are things looking as you head into next season? Well, she impacted us in every way positive. You know, obviously, it got immediate press. I mean, we we had to give up some good players to make the trade, but it got other players around the league who were free agents to say, oh, that might be a great destination. We signed Christy Tolliver from LA's championship team uh, right at that same point. And part of the allure was, hey, I can go play with another uh, good player close to home. You know, both of them are from the East Coast and we can do something special in our backyard. So that was a big draw. And, you know, I think uh, this offseason uh, when free agency starts, um, I think that will be a draw that, you know, we've proven we're a good team. Our window is open. We have a relatively young team and that there's a lot to look forward to. And she's had that impact. Uh, people like playing with her. She's unselfish uh, for being such a great scorer. She's about the right things. You know, when you have players like that on your team, uh, they become magnets for other good players to want to play with them. And I think that's, you know, the big thing. So I look for us to continue to be as least as good as we were, and if not, you know, probably better uh, going forward. We lost a player last summer who had been one of our star players. She was gone for a year. Emma Mieseman from Belgium, she'll be back. And so it's like adding a brand new, you know, star player to this team. We have a lot to look forward to here. Yeah, and how have you found the impact of, European players on the WNBA, much like the NBA, uh, gradually accepted more and more Euros and, and players from outside the United States who became better and better players over the years. How's that been in the WNBA since you became part of the uh, association back in you know, 2003? There have been great players, but not enough. There are plenty that could play here. The problem is, is that because we play in the summer, most national team uh, workouts and competitions for, you know, preparation for the Olympics or whatever, the world championships for foreign players, their national team is a priority. And most of that occurs in the summer. That's partly why uh, Emma missed the season for us this year being from Belgium. I think if we didn't have to fight national team things, it would be almost exactly like the NBA. We'd have far more foreign players being a big part of our league. But it's been very difficult because every summer uh, their national team takes precedence and you lose that player uh, for part or all of a season here and there. That's disruptive to a team. And so you really can afford to only have one or two of those, if that many, on your team without your team being disrupted each year. I wish there was a way to solve that because I think that uh, our league would benefit greatly from having the influx of more European players or foreign players, not even just European. I mean, we have Australian players who have been great in our league. We're starting to get more from South America uh, and other places, but it's just, it's not enough right now. Uh, one of my best players, young players that I had drafted in Connecticut was a woman named Sandrine Gruda from France, but it got to a point after a couple of years that we couldn't uh, depend on her coming every year because of her national team. And that was just tough. Yeah, it makes things very difficult, doesn't it? So it's a bit of a compromising and a balancing act. 
Uh, just two more questions for you, uh, if you don't mind, Mike. You've been so generous with your time. Your children are both basketball coaches. Eric is an assistant with the Washington uh, Mystics, uh, your team. Mm-hmm. And Carly is an assistant women's coach at the University of Minnesota. Um, how's it been for you personally and uh, and your wife to watch them grow and develop into their respective positions uh, where they are now? Yeah, it's been great. At first, you know, when, when Eric was younger, I kind of tried to talk him out of it at first. Uh, he was going to be a journalism person and he was really good at it. He's a very good writer. But his passion for the game was so strong that I just kind of gave up on trying to talk him out of it. <laughs> and with Carly, I didn't even bother because I'd already tried once with Eric. <laughs> but they've grown up around the game. Uh, they've learned to kind of be around adults and players from a young age and be good about it. Uh, they're both very bright. One loves the college game. One loves the pro game. Carly's been very fortunate the last few years. She was at Mississippi State the last two years when they went to the Final Four. She's a young coach on the move. My son is one of the best young teachers of the game. Our players, I think, really appreciate that. He'll be a head coach, I think, sometime soon. Watching them grow up and how much they love the game and you know what they've gotten from the game and what they've given to the game. And I think that's an important thing that we've always talked about, you know, when you're in something like this, make sure that you're giving as much as you're getting and understanding what you're getting. And they're really good at it. Basketball has been an incredible journey for our family. And we've met more people and done more things and gone places that I would have never imagined when I was young. I mean, I was going to be content to be, you know, a high school English teacher and coach. And here I am. I've been in the NBA, the WNBA, the CBA, coached in, you know, the Olympics. I mean, all of those things. And you think, boy, I would have never done this. And, and my, my kids have been able to be a part of that and taking trips to China and Ireland and, you know, other places because of basketball. It's been an incredible journey. The world sure expands when you're doing something like this, the, the people you meet and the things you see. And uh, they're going to both be successful because they've worked at it. Uh, my wife always jokes, you know, she's been in the medical profession as a nurse. She said, I don't understand why nobody wanted to be in that profession. But... <laughs> But she sees that she played high school basketball, too. So it is a basketball family. We've been very, very blessed with what the game has given to us. That's fantastic. And you mentioned the the Olympics. I hadn't even had a chance to ask you. I I thought I'll just let it go because you've chatted for so long. But just quickly, the 2008 Olympics in Beijing, you were an assistant coach on the Team USA's uh, women's gold medal winning squad. Your links to USA basketball go back to, I think, 1993 with the FIBA World Championships. Yep. What was the experience like of being uh, over in China, coaching on the uh, team that won gold 2008? Uh, amazing. It took a lot of work, a lot of preparation, um, a little bit different format now in preparing for the national team than there is now. It's been made a little bit easier, but we took a lot of tours of all over the world, different groups of players trying to prepare for that and select our players. But once you got there... Um, the opening ceremony of the Olympics, when you walk through the tunnel with your team, is as amazing an experience as I can tell people about in sports. I mean, it's a sporting event and it's it's a world event. And, you know, you think about it and you say, boy, this now that'll be fun to do. And then when you do it and you walk into a stadium of 100,000 people who were there for the Olympics, it was a great moment. Uh, the gold medal game obviously was good. I was probably the most nervous person in the whole building because it was my scout, my preparation for Australia. 
and you don't want to be the team that messes up. You know, the United States hadn't lost an Olympic game in like, I don't know how many decades. And Australia was very good at that time with Lauren Jackson and Penny Taylor and uh, Tully and all of those players. And I was nervous as could be. I knew we were the better team, but you never know on a given day. And so in preparing for it, I just didn't want to be that guy that had screwed up. But, you know, we obviously we won and uh, we had a fairly comfortable lead by early in the second half and I could rest a little bit easier. But winning the gold medal, uh, watching our players celebrate it, you know, not only with that group of players and coaches and, and, and our staff became close, but my family was there for the whole time and the things we got to do. My son turned 21 during that week and oh, wow. the party that we had and all, it was just a great time in our life. Fantastic memories. Uh, just the last question I'd like to throw your way. Basketball Digest had a regular feature, which was called The Game I'll Never Forget. Now, we may have already touched on it um, in this chat, but is there one game from your career that stands out above all others? You don't necessarily have to choose one, but is there one? No. No, there, re- there really isn't. There's a whole bunch I could list. You know, Quickly, I could come with about 10 or 11 or 12 that come <laughs> to mind. I mean, obviously, the Michael Jordan game, the, the winning the, the championship in L.A. at home in 82 because of the craziness of it all, uh, that experience. You know, the funny thing about it, I'll say that just as an aside, you know, you think when you're in L.A. and you win two championships and you think, boy, this stuff, that's really good, and, and you move on to Chicago, and you think, well, again, you know, I'll get to experience this again someday soon. I haven't been back. Most people, you don't get to do it at all. But you know, I won two in my first couple of years in the NBA, and then you don't have it again. And it's like, boy, this is really hard. I mean, I thought it was easy. It's it's not easy. It's really hard. Uh, I've been close three times in the WNBA, and uh, winning is hard. And so when you win a big game that gets you one step further, you remember that. But I, I think probably one of the games I remember the most is we weren't picked to go anywhere in Connecticut. Uh, and my second year, we got to the finals, and the game that got us to the finals was such a big deal to the people in Connecticut and to our owners and fans because nobody expected it. We were picked to finish near the bottom, and we were in the finals. You know, looking at the faces of our players and our fans and families after we won that game, it was like we all had to pinch ourselves and say, we're actually going to the finals. We did this. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those. Nobody would have believed it at the start of the year, but we did it. When we won the championship in Omaha in 93, uh, we had to win 18 out of our last 22 games to make the playoffs on the last day of the season. Because as I told you, we had lost players to the NBA, but we eventually got some guys back. But the players that were there weren't the stars at the start of the year, and they worked so hard to get there that uh, we were on such a roll going into the playoffs that I actually felt good about it. But we actually had to win on the last day of the season to get in the playoffs. That's remarkable in itself. There's a lot of those games. I mean, as coaches, you can probably pick out 30 games that feel like that. But those were great experiences. Great to hear you elaborate on these. And thanks so much for the time you've afforded me today, Mike. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, I wish you every success with the Mystics going forwards and whatever else presents itself uh, down the track. But thanks again for taking time to, to talk with me today. You bet. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Leave a voicemail. Simply visit inallairness.com slash voice. Click start recording. Leave a message and press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send and you're done.
Worldwide, the show is approaching 80 reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode of the show. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are worth their weight in gold. Stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and much more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show is on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Android, Pocket Casts, and more. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues, inallairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.